Hey everybody and welcome. You are listening to Lox LaRue's Locker Room. Join me each episode with a different special guest. We'll be breaking the locks off toxic masculinity one locker at a time. This week I'm joined by the dreamy Celestial Moon. Celeste is an award-winning burlesque and cabaret performer. They are also a chronic pain and mental health advocate. Today, me and Celeste talk about gender bending, men's mental health and the importance of being able to express your emotions. Please note that the conversations between me and my guests are purely based on our own thoughts and experiences. Now with all that in mind, sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Hello everyone, and just before we start, here's a lesson in masculinity 101. Research shows that men experience emotions at the same level that women do, but because it's not socially acceptable for a man to cry when he's sad, it can make it seem like men don't experience sadness at all. Suppressing emotions can lead to depression and anxiety, but for men especially, it can also increase their risk of suicide. Men are much more likely to commit suicide than women. Over time, men get really good at turning off their emotions or coping with their feelings in a way that is more acceptable for males. It creates a cycle of toxic masculinity which can be hard to break once it's a habit. Hi everybody and welcome to Lox LaRue's Locker Room. I'm joined here today by Celeste. Super excited. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you today on this sunny day? Uh, I mean, well, I'm sat inside at the moment. <laughs> so hopefully I'll be able to go out and enjoy um, some sun later on, hopefully. Uh, yeah. Have some food. Um, oh. Have a more successful barbecue than I did yesterday. Oh no, uh, what happened? Tell us, the listeners like a good story. It better be good well, now. <laughs> no, I decided it'd be a, a nice idea um, as, as, a, as a date day, date night idea to invest in a barbecue because we've got a garden now. So went and got the barbecue, put the barbecue together, um, lit the barbecue. I took control because I'm an independent woman. Um, and then I made the mistake of putting the, the lid on top while it was still thinking. I don't know why I did that because I've never done that. And I thought, oh, I killed the fire. So we restarted it again. Um, and I think maybe it's because there was a bit of wind or whatever, because the sun was still out, but it wasn't like majorly hot. So I think what happened is it cooked the food, but just not fully. Um, so we ended up putting the rest of it, <laughs> we ended up cooking it in the oven. <laughs> like just to make sure it was fully cooked um but yeah no it was really nice it was really nice food um mine was all vegan which I actually was very surprised at how nice it was um uh, partner's a meat eater but that's fine um, <laughs> I'm joking I'm not that type of vegan um but yeah no it was it was really nice but um I want to try it again at some point and see if I can get it right and yeah. not half or like three quarters cook it like cook the whole thing properly (laughs) but we'll see we'll see having a barbecue just reminds me of like when I was younger I don't know if you ever did this like we used to get those disposable ones and we used to be this common and we used to like do it on there and I was Mm. panicking going are the police gonna come and tell us after doing a barbecue um (laughs) scandalous teenagers like what what about you (laughs) yeah no we used to I, I used to do that in the in the old place where I lived because we didn't have a barbecue for ages so we used to invest in disposable ones and we used to do it quite regularly in the summer um but my partner's never really had a barbecue like ever so I was really shocked by that and I was like is it just is it a British thing I'm not sure because he's he's German um just for context um but you know he's he's done the whole family thing so I was really surprised 
And I was like, well, this is a first for us then to be able to like have our first barbecue together and, and do more because I actually really enjoy cooking and doing things like that. Um, so, yeah. Skilled all around then, aren't you? Which we'll soon find well, out, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Don't put me on the pedestal, Lux. <laughs> setting, me up for, setting me up for failure here. Oh, no. No, you'll be, we'll be fine. Um, but we, we're going to dig into the, the meaty side of things. No pun intended Ooh. with the barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even and... pick up on that. <laughs> I don't think anyone will if they've got a good sense of humour. <laughs> um... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um so um you put means you've got a good sense of humor then if you didn't if you didn't pick up on that because that was a pretty bad joke. no I mean I think I did I think I was just a bit delayed <laughs> and then you kind of reinforced it and I was like oh yeah that was a really good joke you can blame the internet on the delay <laughs> I'll just blame I'll, I'll just blame the brain fog that's what I'll do we've already said that that's um, an issue yeah <laughs> so we've got I'm brain fog everybody so bear with us <laughs> <laughs> yeah this could be a long podcast episode yeah this will be the the record breaking one <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> growing up fill us in um what it was like for you um, and if you can like a main focus on like masculinity and femininity if you can okay. because I know that I watched um your part it's not a podcast is it it's a, like a live you can tell us a bit mm. about this I watched your live um show and mm-hmm. um you talked a bit about how you like football and stuff on that so mm-hmm. yeah take the floor um I think for me I mean I think it, it kind of stems back to kind of my family dynamic I mean my dad was in the army so he was you know a, a traditional heteronormative like manly man um you know and my mum you know very feminine so they kind of fit the kind of the stereotypical parents that you would probably get you know um, within that family dynamic um but I think where a lot of it stems for me like I was always um quite a hyperactive child so I would be running around a lot you know pretty sure that if I was um, a child in the modern day they'd probably say I had ADHD or something or try and put some stigma on me about that um but I was you know I'd run around and I think when I was at school like I was pretty much a girly girl and I always had been um and I think that's probably from my mum like being the firstborn being a girl like she was like oh I can play with your hair and you know what I mean it was that type of thing that that we had as as you know mother and daughter but you know I was always coming home like my pinafore and socks would be covered in dirt and my mum used to go mad She'd be like, what have you been doing? And I'm like, I'm just been running around playing with the boys. Cause that was just, I had much more fun like picking up a stick and pretending to fight and like climbing trees and stuff than I did playing with the girls. Um, and I never really saw that as being anything wrong. It was just, I enjoyed, I enjoyed, I was, I was a hyper kid. I enjoyed running around. Um, you know, I started playing football cause my brother um, played football um, and I used to go and train with them. Um, and then they had started a, a girls football team and I was quite sporty. I was quite athletic as a child. Um, you know, and I think the types of things that my dad used to do with me, so my dad's very active. So we would go swimming every week. We'd go on bike rides all the time. So it, it never kind of felt like it was a, oh, this is a girl thing to do, or this is a boy thing to do. It was just like, this is the types of activities we did as a family, you know, with other families. And it was enjoyable. So I got a lot of enjoyment out of that. Um, and growing up for me, like I said, I was quite athletic, so I was very much into sports and I never really had like a, from my perspective, like you could tell I was a girl, but I didn't really have 
the type of womanly physique like when everyone else started hitting like puberty like I was still straight up and down no boobs <laughs> no hips like and I felt really abnormal I was like why am I not developing in the same way so you know I would try harder to feel a bit more feminine so I would, I would try and dress a bit more feminine um so I felt probably put a lot of pressure onto myself to kind of fill that ideal when really there was nothing wrong with with how I dressed you know I would fluctuate between you know wearing dresses and skirts and wearing you know kind of tracksuit bottoms or like jeans you know like what people would say a tom like a tomboy would look like um again if you were to put a label on that but yeah I just I just did lots of activities I was just very you know like fluid as a person um and my parents fully supported everything that I did you know if I wanted to go and do something it didn't matter whether that was considered to be something a girl would do or a boy would do they would support that and I always really appreciate my parents for you know for allowing me to be who I was um when I was growing up but yeah it was really important oh thank that you was a, <laughs> that was a very long-winded answer this is what you'll get with me I can't just summarize it's always like an epic tale no, it's <laughs> what we like to hear and it means I don't have to talk as much I'm just joking <laughs> sounds lazy oh, I am a ta- I'm a Taurus so that's why I'm, I can be lazy but um... uh, no I'm a Virgo on the Libra cost literally last day of Virgo going to Libra so <laughs> well what it says about me speaking but... of Virgos I was just going to actually mention my mom because my mom's a Virgo um mm. and obviously in relation to what you were saying my mom she um like encouraged me to get involved in lots of activities and it was never seen mm. as like gendered and stuff which is really good like yeah. I took part in like scouts we went on a lot of bike rides we did a lot of swimming mm-hmm. she also encouraged me to do like um theatre and drama so it's good yeah. to get a wide range of things rather than just be stereotypical like you can't mm. do this and that so it's good that you've had supportive parents as well as me um well I thought we'd move on now for um to your burlesque celestial okay. moon um so could you yes. tell us a bit about the <clears throat> background behind celeste and sort mm-hmm. of your style and stuff to start with okay um so I start, so my journey started in January 2018, so nearly three and a half years now, which has just flown by. Um, and quickly, long story short, so my my friend, she was a teacher, she wanted me to go to the class. I kept saying I'd go, but I never went. So she, I made it my news resolution, right, I'll come to your classes. Um, and I'd not even been there very long. And she said, right, you're going in to a competition. And I was like, what? what do you mean I'm going into a competition she went you're my instructor's choice you're going for it and I was like oh my god what do I do and then I got and then I became part of the cab team at the same time so the cabaret team um kind of go around so we do like the performances as part of the company uh so I was kind of thrown straight into it really and I didn't really know what to do with myself because I was like why why have like there's other people that have been doing it for longer than me why have you chosen me um you know and actually before I started doing that I actually had um a jazz band uh, so I had another persona called Ruby Von Steen. Um, so I was considering taking her across on that journey with me. Um, but for some reason, even though I was like, oh, I love that name, it just didn't feel right to me to continue that. So I had to really think about, right, who am I as a person? What means something to me? I need to think of a really good name, which is going to, you know, make me feel empowered and is going to say something about who I am as this performer. Um and I was just, it was a play on words because Celeste Teal is celestial. 
of the word celestial and I like space you know I'm quite a spiritual person um, and then obviously my kind of obsession that I have with the moon it just kind of made sense so celeste celestial moon became celestial moon um, and that kind of came together and the the actual competition that I did um, again I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do but I had this idea that I wanted to do something um, just really out there and that would shock people so I ended up dressing up as a Viking warrior um, so I had like face paint all over my face I had feathers in my hair I had blood coming down me I walked through the audience with a sword um, and I did it to uh, Kate Bush's babushka um, and yeah I ended up just yeah just this whole stage was like covered in blood I was just it, it just looked like a hot mess but everyone remembered me because of that performance um, and I think my kind of style again is inspired by um, you know my kind of interests in terms of um, like my spirituality and and you know the kind of like the Norse mythology um, you know my acting background as well so I didn't want to feel combined to just being this cheesecake smiley smiley burlesque performer I was like I um, I can want to do more than that I don't want to be confined to just doing really glamorous performances you know I want to think outside the box a bit so that's how the neo-burlesque title kind of came to me um and then from there I did another competition um a couple of months later and won in my category um performing so I sang and I danced to Lady Gaga's teeth um, oh I've done and, to that too sorry just sorry no no it's a fantastic song and it's it's really it's just sexy and it's just it's just a bit unusual isn't it um and I dressed up as the countess from American Horror Story which is the, yes. the the character that Lady Gaga played so again I had a human heart well not a real heart but a <laughs> put it out there I didn't get a real heart it looks like a real heart but it's not um and again blood just yeah and just going for it and I've just really enjoyed performing like that things, just doing things outside the box that aren't the stereotypical thing you would expect I don't think from burlesque wow that's that's really that's really cool and fascinating to to, um, to hear about but um in terms of like uh the gender bending side then when do you think mm-hmm. you first started exploring that because I guess you kind of said about um was it the warrior the viking that you said was it a warrior yeah viking? it was like well yeah it's like a, a warrior viking I don't know it was just a yeah it was just a compilation I guess of of my image of of what I would look like if I you know was to um embrace that persona yeah so that's quite like a powerful um mm. image, image isn't it so obviously um and that could be seen I guess is not maybe not how you did it but you could have gender bended a bit in that couldn't you because mm. it gives mm-hmm. off it can give off quite like a masculine energy and stuff so Absolutely, yeah. could you tell us a bit about your gender bending because obviously I saw your amazing <laughs> um Freddie Mercury act um, <laughs> one of the first times I saw you perform actually um, mm. so I was like oh my god like I was glued to the screen and I was like yes <laughs> love you already <laughs> oh bless you um I, well I've got a bit of a confession actually so the the act that you saw originally um didn't involve Freddie Mercury at all um the part where I am Freddie Mercury was actually it was when I put it together it was for a Valentine's Day show as you know from the song choices and you know I had a little bit of a Bridget Jones moment and then 
originally it went into kind of me dressed as a, a bit of a housewife. So I had the apron, the rubber gloves on, um, you know, and all of that. And then obviously um, stripped down to the point where I had like big granny pants on and, um, you know, big granny bra. And it was a bit of a comedy um, routine. And I've not done it again since. So I, I kept the music, but I've never really found the opportunity to use it. So when I was hosting the, the mental health um, charity show, you know, I, I told Gio, so Gio did know about it beforehand. I was like, don't say anything to anybody about what I'm planning on doing because I wanted it to be uplifting as well because some of the performances were so powerful and emotionally moving. Um, I wanted to do something at the end that just kind of broke that off a little bit. Um, and I thought, what perfect way, let's do a bit of comedy. And then I thought, you know what, I'm going to dress up as Freddie Mercury, I'm going to do it. So I ordered a really cheap pink top off Amazon. I already had the skirt, I had the stockings, I ordered loads of moustaches, um, which I would describe as being um, 70s porn tashes. Um, Love it. And just, I just thought, I'm going for it, I'm going to do it. And if it lands well, great, if it doesn't... Um, Oops. But I think that's always the risk when you do something which is I, as iconic as I want to break free and you dress as Freddie Mercury. You know, you're a female who dresses as Freddie Mercury, who's dressing as a woman. <laughs> so, um, And I didn't know how it was going to land. But, you know, again, that's something now people refer to that. And it's, I've now got this other alter ego, which is specifically for that performance as Freddie Moon. So that's now what it's called. And I would like to think, you know, if Freddie Mercury was alive, that he would, you know, want people to do that piece justice and continue that legacy that he created, you know, to have fun, to perform. It doesn't matter what your gender is. Just put, if you want to put a wig on, put a wig on. If you want to put a mustache on, put it on. Have a bit of fun with it. And you can do that in Bel Air. There isn't any limitation to what you can do. You're not confined. You certainly um, embodied that. <laughs> Thank you. Mm. But yeah, and with like the gender bending as well, like, the first time I really pushed myself in that aspect I've always been quite androgynous with my style in mm -hmm. my burlesque but with the Valma I really sort of tried to take up a bit of a level with like the comedy element and representing mm -hmm. an icon like Valma who is now a lesbian yes. who's now a lesbian but obviously they're not a real person like Freddie Mercury but it's kind of like that iconic thing of yes I wear mm. these bright orange stockings I'll still have hairy legs I like wear this bob <laughs> wig that is like a Karen wig um <laughs> love it and uh, you know <laughs> just like a, a bright orange bra underneath and sparkly red pants it's kind of like you know you're trying to take it to a next level um mm. so um just towards the end of the interview now I wanted to talk about more one more topic um because okay. I know you've got a psychology degree and mm -hmm. obviously you're studying at university now um so if you could tell us a bit about that um mm -hmm. and then um like what your interests are in that field and then we'll move on to the bit of the more masculine side to finish off yeah give the audience a bit of an education <laughs> a bit of a schooling <laughs> oh gosh I'll try and condense it down as much as I can um yeah I mean when I was when I was at school I to be honest with you I I was quite a, an academic student um in some respects like I really enjoyed literature um philosophy and ethics you know things like that but I never really fully knew what I wanted to do so I did sixth form and then there's all that pressure of like you need to decide what you want to do and go to university and I just wasn't sure I was like I don't want to commit to something that I'm not 100 you know like 100% sure about um you know I, I did think about teaching so I took a year out started working started earning some money quite enjoyed the independence of doing that 
uh, you know, I got back involved with theatre. So I was having like, during that time, I was like living my best life, really, like, because I was working, still got to do all the things that I enjoyed, you know, and I was still able to be around my family and my friends. Um, and I ended up actually um, going into therapy myself. Um, and it's almost so I did that at 19 and I'm now 29 and it's almost like in the last 10 years, like I've done a full cycle. So the person that helped me 10 years ago is now the role that I'm in helping other people do the same thing. So I feel like for me, like that was supposed to happen that way. Um, so after I'd actually completed the therapy, I just changed my career path. I started doing my degree through Open University. Uh, I continued working. I started working in lots of different, I just tried to get as much experience as I could. So I started off working in, in learning disabilities. Uh, I worked in nursing home. I worked on a social assessment unit. I worked in mental health. Uh, I worked in old age psychiatric care. Um, I worked in the community. I worked in the prison. Um, and then finished, I finished my degree last year. Um, so I was still working in the prison, um, working. Uh, so I was facilitating on offender behavior programs, which I really enjoyed doing, really enjoyed doing that. Um, and then and like opportunities come up um, to be a training psychological wellbeing practitioner. So if, if anyone's listening to this, who you know, does have an interest in psychology or going down that route, like these jobs are like gold dust. They really are so difficult to secure and they literally go up on NHS jobs one day and they shut by the end of it. So you have to be quick. So I was just like applying, applying, applying um, and got an interview. Um, so, and they told me afterwards, like there was like 600 applicants. They interviewed 60. They got it down to uh, 15 of us and we had to have another interview and then it got down to 12. So I was one of 12 out of 600 people. So I feel really grateful um, for that opportunity. Um, so I've been doing that since October last year. So I work clinically four days and also do university on a Friday to get a postgraduate uh, certificate. So I'll be able to deliver, um, well, I'll be qualified. Um, I think it's a couple of months when I've got to hand all my portfolio in. Um, so I will be post-certified qualified therapist to be able to work with people delivering low intensity interventions um so yeah I just, I just feel really grateful to be able to have that because I didn't expect it to happen as quickly as it did um but yeah I think I just have I have so much interest in psychology there isn't a particular area where I'm like really fixated on because I've just I would love to learn it all and be able to do it all but I know it's not possible so uh, I would say um, at the moment, it's clinical psychology because of the training position that I'm in. Um, but I had, I, you know, I've got a really in, like interest in forensics. I love watching serial killer documentaries. I'm one of those people. I love them. Not the serial killers. I just love understanding the psychology behind it, like why people behave in the way that they do. Um, really interested in, you know, things around relationships. You know, which is why um, me and my friend Chris do the analyze this. You know, like the video lives again just asking those really, you know, questions that people want to know about, but maybe don't always ask um, and just getting balanced opinions on that. So yeah, it's just the whole thing. Like I can't even explain like <laughs> how interesting I find it all. And it just blows my mind, but I just try to learn as much as I, as much as I can about it. Wow. Definitely um, multi-talented and 
multi-skill jack of all trades <laughs> oh stop stop <laughs> you're making me blush um, it's like i'm brown nosing you <laughs> <laughs> it's working it's working, it's working. <laughs> um that's how i got you on the podcast <laughs> well i mean all the amazing people you could interview like i did wonder why you picked me but oh, well you know, very, this very episode honored. makes sense why obviously but there's loads of reasons um and another reason is actually um we're about masculinity which we're going to talk about mm, um because okay. you said you did a bit of research on that now um I've got down in my notes that um, you focused on um, men's mental health, like positive mental health, mm-hmm. um, stigma and societal masculine ideals um, yes. and toxic masculinity and impact on role models. There's mm-hmm. obviously quite a few things there. Yeah. So is there anything in particular that you think that you found interesting while researching all of that or if you can give us a bit of a background and um, there's a few um, points that I oh, could yeah, talk about myself I guess if you if obviously um yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so um yeah just just got the research paper in front of me just as a reminder yeah, here we go everyone <laughs> are you ready so I suppose just kind of outlining um like the actual research project and what I was looking into so my research project was called man up this is a man's world uh, how men make sense of positive mental health, masculinity, mental health support, and health-seeking behaviour. So what the, the reason why I thought this was really important was because a lot of the literature, uh, for anyone, again, who you know has an interest in this, if you try and find any literature specifically about uh, how men view positive mental health, it's very few and far between. There's a lot on the negative impacts, you know, and, and a lot of what I've actually spoken about in the research because it was quite relevant in terms of how it linked to their sense of positive mental health um so i just thought i'm gonna i want to challenge this i want to understand you know if they do have a positive sense where that comes from and if there are any barriers that might get in the way of that you know such as what the literature is telling us things like stigma societal norms this idea of you know hemogenic masculinity um so what I actually looked at, so unfortunately, because of the COVID situation, so this was last year, like I literally got my focus group and then the, the week after we went into lockdown. Uh, so I could only get four people to do it, which um, was fine. But again, you know, if we were doing this at a larger scale, um, it would have been interesting to see how the findings differed um, between, you know, different age groups, different ethnicities, um, you know, cultural backgrounds, sexuality, things like that. Um, so what my findings actually showed was that men do have quite a diverse understanding um, about what they thought positive mental health is, um, you know, what they can do for their own mental well-being support and what support they had access to. And what was really interesting is that there was a lot of like culturally agreed language between the men that were part of that focus group about, um, you know, certain attitudes, um, societal expectations around masculinity um, and the stigma that's associated with that and how you know, they at times were actually challenging that notion, um, you know, about their own identity and negotiating that. So it was really interesting overall to try and think about, you know, where those ideas had come from and and how they got to that stage. Um, And like I said, the the research, I mean, I will send it across to you at some point so you can have a read of it, but I'll try and break it down. So, you know, a lot of the literature behind it, again, looking at stigma, help-seeking behaviour, the social support that men have, or don't have access to. Um, So again, 
from some of the findings that I found, particularly with this, with this group, um, you know, that they did have um, a sense of what positive mental health was. However, there was that innate kind of um, experience that had in terms of their upbringing, which dictated how they responded to certain situations. So an example might uh, from the uh, from the research and the focus group was that there were certain things which had been imposed on them such as you know man up boys don't cry you know that you are the breadwinner you need to behave like this so they'd been fed a lot of those narratives for most of their lives so that had played quite an impact um, on you know how they access support because they're often told that you know you need to like solve your own problems you know you don't go to anybody else for help but actually, a lot of the men in this group had sought help and support. So they were almost challenging um, those like hemogenic notions that had been imposed on them for most of their lives. So I found that really, really interesting. Um, but on the flip side of that also, um, in terms of what they got told growing up, so certain what we would consider to be um, you know, masculine traits, such as autonomy, you know, power and resilience, were actually quite useful in helping them maintain a positive sense of, of identity and a positive sense of mental wealth well-being so there was almost like an impasse it's like getting that right balance and where that is for different people so I thought that was really interesting um, and again there was um, some significant differences between the masculine narratives um, between generations as well so within the focus group, um, you know, there was quite a variety of, of, you know, there were at different stages in their lives. So that may have also impacted how they view mental health in the modern day in comparison to what they've had as part of their upbringing as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I suppose that's kind of it in, in a nutshell. I mean, I could talk about it all day and I, I've got loads of information that I'd, I'd like to share with you. But I think another important thing that I kind of took away from it as well was thinking about how accessible um, help is to men if they are feeling you know that, that they need some kind of mental health support um, you know and they they gave like some examples of things they could access but there was almost a reluctance to access those services because those services might not be right for me so it's more I mean future research that I kind of put down you know things that maybe people should consider in the future is actually do we need gender specific services? for men to be able to access where you know whether that be um people who are trained to deal with uh particular male issues that might come up and uh, does it need to be men that are running you know that kind of service or that group to offer that support to men and i know that there are some um you know i think there's something called andy's man shared i think it's called andy's man club or something like that where they do um, you know it is men kind of getting together sharing a common interest but also being in that safe space um so yeah I mean that's it's hard because there's so much more I want to say about it but it was just it was a really interesting um really interesting study and to get that feedback from people um you can definitely see how it's changed and what I would be interested to see is if I had done this before covid and also like redo the study again now and see how that would differ. Because one thing that picked up as well in the research was this was the onset of COVID as well. So the social distancing had already start, had been implicated um, and the sense of isolation. And the men in the focus group were concerned about how that would have an impact on their mental well-being. Um, 
you know, particularly not being able to see people, not being able to go to work and do what they would normally do. So that was quite a huge, a huge factor for them. Wow, let ever take that in everybody. That's really interesting. But I was like transfixed by all of that from start to finish, and I'd love to hear about more of it. Um, mm. But there's a few things I picked up from that. I think the accessibility is really interesting. But yeah, in terms for the podcast as well, I'd I had made a few points um, prior to this actually. We could talk mm-hmm. about before we finish. Um, obviously, I found the you know the societal influence and the stigma and stuff and also this idea of like role models as well um which I wanted to kind of touch on a bit because I've been reading this book (laughs) um it's called the man they wanted me Mm -hmm. to be have you heard of that I've heard of it yeah but I've not I've not purchased it yet you'd really like it I can lend it you Mm. (laughs) (laughs) um so the reason why I referenced that is because um to sort of back up my points because um in Mm. that it talks about a bit how that, that he sort of talks about role models and sort of the different generations and also mm-hmm. um you know the expectations um you know mm-hmm. like you were saying a bit with like man up and stuff like that um yeah. and I think he made a few points I can't really remember properly but he made a few points about some of his role models that for example with his um mum's husbands uh, different husbands and stuff um like his stepdad and stuff they would go to work and say if they had a bad day I think they'd come back and take it out on the family um and there's that kind of idea that you've got to be strong and just put all of it at work like if you're a man for example um and then there's Mm. I guess that could tie in with what you're saying about positive mental health that you know what I mean there's not that say if they'd come back home and been like oh I've had a really bad day you know being able to express themselves that kind of links in with just a bit of a personal thing about me I used to work in students union and Mm -hmm. my personality changed a bit when I was in that because it was quite a competitive environment I was quite like the director of the company I was like a a student role voted in but it was quite a high up role Mm. and with that I I kind of found myself like if I had a bad day at work I'd kind of take it out at the person at home after and yeah bottle up my feelings in this masculine political competitive environment and I kind of felt I wasn't necessarily like abusive in the way that they talk about in the the book but um I was just my point was that sometimes I've been in that situation where I've, I've given into toxic masculine traits where I've been at work and I've bottled it up and not practiced positive mental health um mm. because there's that yeah. pressure to be like the strong you know breadwinner and you know you've mm. got to put up with it because it's your job and stuff so I don't know if you had any comments on that first yeah <laughs> I do of course I do um <laughs> sorry yeah. if that kind of like went off tangent and no not at all no I think it, it makes perfect sense and that sorry I was just rustling through because while you were talking I was like I know I've got some points about this somewhere in the research yeah. but I can't I can't find it but um yeah I think I think one of the things is at the moment and this isn't just for men this is as human beings we are not taught at school how to manage our emotions so what happens is we are not emotionally regulated when we're placed into situations that make us feel uncomfortable you know we're not taught how to deal with that uh we're not taught how to express it so what tends to happen is things get bottled up and like you just said there you explode maybe not even at the person you know it might be the person that you go home to and they say one thing and it's triggered so emotional resilience is such a huge thing which we just don't get taught and I feel like we need to be teaching you know our children this earlier on 
But if parents have never been taught that, how can they pass that on to their children? And that's where the worry starts to come because, you know, if we're going to keep feeding these narratives, like you wouldn't say to a girl, don't cry. Do you know what I mean? So it's, it's almost as if like, it's perfectly okay for, for girls to cry because it's that expectation that girls are weaker. So therefore, and they're more emotional. So therefore they're allowed to do that. But a man can still be a man and still be able to express his feelings because he's still human. It just isn't the manly thing to do. I mean, I remember the first time I saw my dad cry and I did not know what to do. Like, I think it was, um, I remember us being in the car, driving to Meadow Hall, which is a, um, a big shopping centre in Sheffield. And, oh no, we were driving back. Sorry, we were driving back. And it was just me and my dad. And we spent some time together and something, a song came on the radio and my dad started crying. And I've never, in the whole time that I've been alive, seen my dad cry. And it was a really emotional moment for him because I responded to that by crying. So we were both just crying in the car. And I mean, we spoke about it and I was like, you know what? I'm really glad that I've actually been able to see my dad, who is the army guy, you know, who I thought was really, really tough. He does have emotions. You know, he feels something and he's been the same ever since. And he encourages um, my youngest brother. I mean, he's only 10, but he's really he's really sensitive. You know, and he's not afraid to express his emotions. And I'm like, that's good. But he still goes out and plays rugby and runs around, you know, like a boy should or would, however you want to phrase it. But it's getting that balance and telling people to not be afraid. Like, if you feel emotions, that's okay. This is how you can deal with it. And they're just not taught that. It's really sad. It's really interesting, yeah, how you it was you trailed it back a bit to everyone as well. And um, before people gender it as well so it's kind of like two angles isn't it it's kind of like mm-hmm. everyone in general's talked about emotions um and then also yes. the separate thing of people gender it with the man up so, so it's kind of like different two mm. different angles isn't yeah. it before we leave have you got any sort of um lasting words you want to leave to people or words of advice whether it's on anything that we've talked about today probably <laughs> can't remember remember it now but I know, whatever, it's either your burlesque or masculinity men- positive mental health um just anything you want to leave us with um before we go today um I think just from a personal perspective you know and that's it's been nice that I've been able to combine two of my passions so you know performance and mental health and what I would say to anybody is you know particularly from a health perspective you know, if you do feel like you need to reach out, it doesn't mean you are not weak. If anything, you're a stronger person for being able to say that you need help. I would like to thank Celeste for coming on to this podcast. If you want to catch more of Celeste, then check out their Instagram handle in the episode description. I would also like to thank all of you lovely listeners for tuning into this podcast, especially Penny, who wrote me a heartwarming review. She said, fantastic podcast, engaging, funny clever moving i love it if you do feel like leaving a review please do so thank you for listening to loxlaroo's locker room and make sure to follow me on instagram at loxlaroo bye get some popcorn and um (laughs) lesson from celeste part one get yourself coffee Um, (laughs) (laughs) it'll be a long afternoon no um (laughs)